Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, choir. And we're so thankful also to have uh, members of our alumni council here today. We're so glad to have you here and all that you do to represent our alumni around the world. So thank you for being here. And I also see a great group of salvos here. Salvation Army. So glad you're here. Praise God for the salvos. Good to have you here today as well. So we're, we're thankful for your presence here. Uh, the theme for this year at Asbury is the theme, The Means of Grace. Uh, these are all the ways in which God is instituted to help us grow spiritually. Uh, there was a survey done a few years ago by Willow Creek where they actually did a survey of 2,000 churches and they interviewed, believe it or not, a half a million Christians to find out what helped churches grow their people spiritually. Now, you must remember that in the megachurch movement, one of the foundational principles of it was that the get people involved, it was an attractive model, get them involved, start every group imaginable. You have groups ranging from prayer groups to fellowship groups to groups to help you lose weight, groups to, uh, you know, raise children, groups to help your finances, endless groups like that. And they wanted to find out if these groups actually help people to grow. After the survey, which, by the way, was $3 million of expenses they spent on this, they got the results back and found out of all the groups that churches have started and invested enormous resources in, only two groups actually help people to grow spiritually. Now, you will not be shocked by what two groups. Prayer groups and Bible studies. All right. Oh, really? they inadvertently stumbled on two of the means of grace, all right? John Wesley lays these out in his uh, sermon 13 on the means of grace, his sermon on that topic. They could have saved $3 million if they just read Wesley's sermon. (laughs) But the point being, God has set forth for us a means of grace, and we want to survey that uh, this year. The idea, of course, goes back to uh, the entire biblical tradition, but the phrase means of grace is one that comes up in church tradition and, despite rumors to the contrary, was not coined by John Wesley. Uh, this phrase, for example, appears in the Heidelberg Catechism in section 68. Uh, it appears, and maybe this is a first for Asbury, this mentioned from this pulpit, it actually is question number 154 of the Westminster Catechism. So this is a tradition that goes back, that's 1563 and 1647. And so Wesley in the 18th century, he really latches on to this and makes this central to his understanding of how we are sanctified, practically speaking. It doesn't just come from a zap from heaven, but God actually does things with us that we cooperate with him in our sanctification. Now, in his uh, Sermon on the Means of Grace... And he has many lists about them. We'll look at those throughout the course of this year. But the key theme of the whole thing is the starting point must be, and this is the title of our sermon today, Jesus Christ is the fountainhead of all the means of grace. I want us to set it together. Uh, Let's do it together. Jesus Christ is the fountainhead of all the means of grace. What Wesley says is that Christians often confuse the means of grace with the end of grace. 
we confuse the means for the source of grace. And he wants us to see that Christ is the source and the goal of the whole thing. And sometimes, like everything else, we can confuse that and end up replacing who he is with what we do. And so Wesley makes it clear that if you just do the means of grace in and of themselves, I'm quoting his letter here or his sermon, it's less than nothing in vanity. I like this one line he has where people who just do a lot of activity for the sake of, uh, of grace on its own grounds turn God's arms against himself by keeping Christianity out of the heart by those very means that were ordained to bring it in. So Wesley is very clear in his opening and his sermon on this that we must begin that Christ is the means of grace. He is the fountainhead of all the means of grace, which we'll look at during this semester. So our text is in Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Now, if you have your scripture, you'll probably notice, based on what translation you have, it generally has one of the two headings to this section, either the preeminence of Christ or the supremacy of Christ. Those are great titles for this section. The section occurs in two parts. One is uh, verses 15 to 20, which we're going to put on the overhead here now, which is the Christ hymn. Uh, this is an early uh, Christ hymn in the New Testament, which Paul brings into his letter in Colossians. We'll look at this more in a minute. And then verses 21 to 23, which is the application of that to our, to our lives. Now, it's really amazing that you can go to the New Testament and find so many early Christian hymns. I mean, it's like, this is pre-Paul. This goes way back. This gives us, we sang, Ah, oh, the Father's Love Begotten, a very, very early chant of the church. This goes back even farther. We can go into the New Testament and find multiple early hymns, creedal hymns, Christ hymns, which reveal the Christology of the early church. Uh, today, the choir beautifully sang from Philippians 2, another Christ hymn. Just last, a week or two ago, I preached in the Daily Eucharist on 1 Timothy 3, another six-line Christ hymn there. They're in Luke's, Luke's Gospel, John 1, Hebrews 1, Ephesians 2, 2 Timothy 2, Revelation 4 and 5. There are a lot of these throughout the New Testament, and one of these is found in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And this hymn essentially celebrates Christ's supremacy over creation and redemption, these two big themes uh, in the Bible. And then, of course, he applies it. Now, there are a lot of theories about the background of this hymn. I won't go into all of them. Some say it's a, you know early Gnostic uh, creation hymn that they rewrote and applied to Christ. Sometimes it's an early wisdom hymn applied to Christ. But I think it's more likely simply a Christ hymn written in light of the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. But it's something you'll have to think about yourself. But I want you to notice that in this hymn, there are five main uh, proclamations or assertions about Christ and who he is. The first, Christ is the image of the invisible God, He's the firstborn over all creation. Christ before him, okay, then go down here to the next slide. The, he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the, uh, the reconciler of all things. So we have these five decorations, the image of the angel of God, firstborn of creation, the creator of all things, head of the church, and reconciler of all things. In the middle of that, 
You have him being Lord over creation redemption is this wonderful word, verse, not verse 19, that he is God's fullness dwells in him in bodily form. And this to me is more than just one of the five. This is the underlying proclamation of the deity of Christ as the incarnate Son of God. And this gets picked up again and repeated in Colossians 2, 9. Now let's look at, I'm going to look at really only first, second, and fifth of these because of our time, and I want to focus on how the means of grace tie into those three. Okay, first, uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. Christ has made visible the invisible God. Now, if you remember, even in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6.16 says God dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And then John verse 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the only begotten one. He has made him known. So what we're learning here is that the incarnation is what makes the invisible God, who's non-corporeal, makes him visible to us, and God stamps his image on him. God brings him to us that we can see what God is like. So God reflects the image of God as deity in the way that only he singularly does. But also he reflects the image of God in our humanity as the God-man. Now sometimes we uh, celebrate, appropriately so of course, the deity of Christ. But sometimes we forget we should also celebrate the full humanity of Christ. So Christ comes in the incarnation not only to reveal God to us, which is the story we often celebrate, but also he comes to reveal man to us, that is, the humanity to us, what it means to be embodied creatures created in the image of God. Now, if you go back to uh, the phrase image of God, we, of course, know this comes to us at the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. Now, this is actually at the heart of the creation, and God, in Genesis 1, 26, 27, says, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And then so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then later in Genesis 5, when they have the recap of creation, he says, He made humankind in the likeness or image of God. I think most everyone in this room will know that the phrase image of God is applied to no other creative act of God than his creation of man and woman. Okay, this is a singular gift to us by the grace of God, and it's been imprinted upon us, and it distinguishes us from the animals. We have God's imprint. We are God's co-regents in the world. We represent him in the world as his stewards in the world. There are many implications of this which we can't look at today. But the point is, at the fall, this image is broken in some way. It is always intact. It's always there, but it's broken in some way. And the churches, you know, have our own family argument about how much it's broken. All right, so you have the Pelagians who say, well, it's not broken that much. Just a few little smudges. We can clear those off. And then the, the hyper-Calvinists, oh, it's hopelessly broken. All right, so the church has its own argument about that. That's fair enough, and that's something you have to work out. But we all agree that it's broken. 
It's, I mean, some people say it's kind of like going into a fair, you know, you go into like the, the, the and they have those mirrors, those like really weird mirrors, and you see yourself, and you're like, whoa, is that me? So God looks at you and says, whoa, is that me? I don't recognize me. Some of you are like, oh, that's, I can see a glimmer there, you know, right? Okay, so, you know, maybe the distortion is different. I mean, maybe some of us more than others. We, that's all something that the church can discuss. But the point is, it's broken. It's, I think we have to infirm at least two truths. Broken, but always intact, yet in some way broken. So Christ is coming to restore that image. And frankly, put it bluntly, the means of grace are given to us to help us restore the image of God. And this is why, if you look at the Old Testament and you're reading about the image of God, image of God is so important in the creation account. And suddenly uh, you have, when Noah and the ark account occurs, when they come out of the uh, ark, you have, of course, the reissuing of the Edenic Commission in Genesis 9-6. And he tells them the same two things. You're creating the image of God. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So it recapitulates Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. But that is the last time the phrase image of God appears in the entire Old Testament. If you don't believe me, ask Bill Arnold <laughs> or whoever, Lawson Stone. Ask anybody that knows Old Testament. true. It doesn't appear again. So suddenly there's this, there's this, it just, Genesis is not in the law, not in the prophets, not in the writings, not in the Psalms, it's nowhere, it doesn't appear. And then suddenly it crashes in on the New Testament in texts like this in, Col- in, uh, in Colossians, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Romans 8.29, etc. So what happened? Why is this? It happens because the Old Testament is bringing out the other side of this, this broken side. We are meant to be, and we are created to be, image bearers, but instead we become idol bearers. Okay, we are all this about the false image, the, the idolatrous image, the whole theme of idolatry, all through the Old Testament is really given as kind of the anti-image look. The, the people of God are always struggling with this. They're creating idols, and not just wood, gold images, but also today bank accounts or whatever else we do to create our own life apart from God. So all, all idolatry in the Bible is a kind of anti-image bearing, creating things that we say this is what God is like when it's not. And so the means of grace are designed to restore you to the full image. So when Christ comes into the earth, we have this declaration of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. We now finally see God being imaged, both as God but also as man. It's humanity. He's now being reflected. The mirror is unbroken in Jesus. So the means of grace are kind of like the mirror repair job. God's going to come in and use the means of grace to repair the mirrors that we all have that in various ways are broken. So Christ completes that vocation of humanity by showing what we were originally intended to be and to live. So we're seeing in Christ something fully alive, we're seeing humanity fully alive like it's never been seen before. The church fathers could not fully describe how the deity and humanity interplay because remember they, they decided, of course, Orthodox Christology, it's two, uh, it's the, hum, two, the humanity and the deity united in one person. It's like, it's like fire on wood. You can't separate the fire from the wood. 
And so Christ coming to earth is setting the world on fire. And nobody has been able to put that out yet. Praise God. Because he shows us what we're intended to be. And as G.K. Chesterton said, I quoted at the the, uh, the opening service, you know, the world, even those who don't believe in incarnation, are different from having heard of it. It, it, it. it captures our imagination that God would come and dwell with us. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Now, if there ever was a phrase that has caused confusion in the church, it is this one. Uh, on a superficial reading, anybody who reads this and says, wait a minute, Christ is the firstborn doesn't this seem to be a disruption to all of our theology of Christ as the eternal Son of God from all time and all, you know, all through before all time? He is eternally the Son of God. How could he be the firstborn of creation? This pops up you know, in Hebrews 1 and Revelation 1. And this, of course, was the source of the Arians. And Arianism was a heresy that was very hard for us to work to defeat. It took us a long time to defeat it. And, of course, the Jehovah Witness still carry the banner for that. But basically, the church had a huge confrontation on this point. And their slogan was, there was a time when he was not. And they loved to quote this verse. So, and that, that's why the Arians were so hard to defeat. They were so good at quoting verses. All right? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, were the Arians right? Why do we have this? Of course, Scripture interprets Scripture. But if you go back and look at the word for firstborn, prototokos, Proto, first, tokos, firstborn. This word appears 130 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Now, if you take time, and I hope that all of you do this, take time and go look at all 130 references of how firstborn is used in the Old Testament, and this is what you'll find. This is how you understand the meaning of it in the New Testament. It's used in two ways. First, it's used the way you would expect. It's used to refer to uh, people who are born, and they're literally the firstborn child. It's particularly referenced to the firstborn son in the Old Testament, and it's repeatedly used in the way that we would expect it to use, and this is where the Arians uh, get that from. And the way we use it today, who's the firstborn child or whatever. But it's used another way. It's been used important and prominently in other places in the Old Testament another way. It's not just a biological thing. It's also a declared title a declared inheritance. So, for example, in Psalm 89, 27, God says of David, I will appoint him my firstborn. Now, David, as you know, was not the firstborn son, right? He was the eighthborn son. He had seven older brothers. God bless his mother. He was the eighth son. He has no biological uh, claim to firstborn son, but it's, it's bringing out this other way it's used, which is a declared title. And he's declared and given privileges and rank and so forth by being the king. And this has all kinds of messianic implications, which we want to look at today. But still, it happens a lot. So in the case of this passage, it's being used in that sense. He is declared the firstborn over, over all creation. Now this means that he is... And this is the phrase the church loved, used in our early chant. He is the firstborn, eternally begotten Son. This means that Christ is able to be the Son because He's begotten, but He's eternally begotten, right? That's the eternal side. 
So the Son is the eternal begotten one. The Spirit, by the way, we did last year, is the eternally proceeding one. So the, the church conceptualized the, the Father and the Son uh, is ever, ever more begotten or eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And this is what, for example, Basil, the great, the great Cappadocian father, called the two arms of the Father. And this is the way God communicates himself to us in the world, through the Father and through the Son and through the Spirit. So here we have Christ being declared the firstborn in that sense. But it's also, there is a biological truth to this, this phrase. He is also biologically born as the God-man in time. Right? This is a point we don't dispute either. We, we embrace that. That God became a man. No compromise in that. It wasn't like a mask or something. He actually became a man, the God-man. He steps into human history. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh. So the whole point of this is that we do believe that, that God took on humanity. And therefore, there is a place where Christ comes as the firstborn of a creation, meaning the firstborn over the new creation, just as Adam was the first, you know, the firstborn of a creation, kind of biologically in that way, Christ is the firstborn over the new creation of the redeemed humanity. And then, of course, we have the reference here in our text to he's the firstborn over the dead. He's also the firstborn, meaning the first of the resurrected ones. Remember uh, in Corinthians 15, he's called the first fruits. So Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead. So he's also first with that. So there's many ways in which this firstborn language resonates fully and completely with historic Christian teaching about Christ. And so we celebrate that in Colossians 1.15. Now I want to say a word about, particularly to our women students here today, and other, all women that are here today, about what it means to when you open your Bible and you read about Christ being the firstborn son how the, the inheritance of the son, the sonship, all of that language. How should you read this as a woman? Okay, this is important because when you read this as a woman, you must remember you are still a full inheritor of all the claims of sonship. There should be an amen there. No one should exclude you from the claims of sonship. You're part of that. You are what the church has called occasionally, you are daughtered sons. That means to say that you are fully, though, by the way, nothing, nothing, it's wonderful that you are declared in Scripture to be the daughter of the Most High God. And, and Christ refers to people as women as daughters of God. That's a wonderful uh, truth that you also have, but you don't relinquish the other. And for the men in our midst, although if you're a man, you are a biological son, you are a full member of the bride of Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, if you are a woman, no one can rob you of the claims of sonship. And because I'm a man, I'm not robbed of being part of the bride of Christ. I'm not sure what it means to be a bright old son, but, or whatever, but there must be some term for that. The point is, it's not about biology. It's a declared status, declared inheritance. So because the Old Testament uses language of sonship and inheritance and a lot of things in their culture, we don't go, oh, no, that's just, uh, that's just you know, uh, 
uh, Old Testament patriarchal language, we're going to throw it all out. No, no, we don't throw it out. We embrace it. Because these are some of the promises of God are born out on that. And therefore, we have to receive that and appreciate what it means for Christ to be the one who inherits things. So the means of grace, the second point, is the means of grace are, in, are given to us to help you reclaim your inheritance. So all of you are given inheritance under Christ and in Christ, and the means of grace helps you to inherit that. And no one here should uh, not uh, should relinquish anyway the, all the things that God has promised for you in, in the Word of God. I, I love the story that Old Robert used to tell about how he had this dream. He, he loved having dreams. And he... Um, saw in his dream. I never have dreams like this, by the way, so I quote other people's dreams. I, I go to sleep and I just dream about weird stuff. But, you know, people have these great dreams. They go to heaven, talk to Jesus. I never had that. So pray for my dream life. But <laughs> he had a dream where he went to heaven and he saw this building there. And, and so he asked the angel, he said, you know, what's that building? And the angel said, you don't know what that building is? No. Those are all the inheritances that were granted to you that you never claimed. And he said, when he woke up, he tells us, he says, and I aim to empty out that building. <laughs> a lot of you have unclaimed freight, you know. Unclaimed inheritance is waiting for you that you've not claimed as a child of God. And sometimes we let, like, you know, the health, wealth thing and all that kind of do, get us, oh, no, no, we can't. no, 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 this is not about that. This is about just the basic claims of what it means to be a child of God. And we want to make sure that we, we claim that. Finally, uh, verse 20, Christ is the reconciler of all things. Now, Paul says in verse 20 that through him he reconciles all things to himself, whether things in heaven or on earth, things uh, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, this is a very powerful statement about what it means for Christ to reconcile all things. It means... First of all, that Christ is moving the whole of human history. Everything is moving inexorably to that point where everything is reconciled to Christ. Don't resist that. That's where it's all headed. We can, you know, the old thing, we can look at the, look at the book. And you know how you, look, you don't want to read a book. You're like in the first chapter of the book. You're really anxious to see what happens, you know. You go in there, look at the back of the book. I'm going to just peek in the back of the book. Jesus wins. All right, he is not going to allow unreconciliation. So therefore, at some point, when the eschaton comes, Christ returns, there'll be all kinds of stuff happening, uh, all kinds of brokenness. He will set things right. Judgment for the Christian is not something that we're embarrassed about. It is the glory of the Christian. We praise God that the human traffickers will be set right before God. We praise God that those who who uh, go against their like, landlords, who take advantage of their renters, or tenants, to, they're in poverty. They're going to be set right. God's going to show up and set things right. It's not just reconciliation about some kind of spirit. It's all of things reconciled. Creation itself will be made right before God. All of creation. I think it's maybe impossible that like, all the pollution and stuff we've done, God might say, you know what? We're going to get this right, so get to work. New creation, we got a long way to go. 
The whole point is, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to all be made right, polluted rivers and all. Everything in creation is reconciled to Christ. It's a huge doctrine, huge doctrine. It's also a, a declaration like on the, on the day of on Easter. He is not here, he is risen. It's a declaration of what is, even if people aren't, don't get it yet. He is the reconciled one. He is the reconciler. It's also, I think, aspirational in the sense that the church is preaching this gospel of, of reconciliation to the ends of the earth. So you, as our students and those who are in ministry already, you are called to be the ambassadors of reconciliation. And we bring that through the preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are agents of reconciliation. Now, many of you, uh, all of us to some degree, surely, are inside of us carrying around aspects where they're not reconciled. You have brokenness, you have anger, you have bitterness, unforgiveness, all of those things churn around inside of us. And so God is saying to us, I am the reconciler, let's get it right. Now, for some of you, it's things that you have done to others. You have, li- you've, you have ex- you know, had brokenness poured out from you into others' lives, and you have to make that right. And others of you, others have broken you in various ways. They have hurt you in various ways. And you, you remember that. You hold on to that. This is not a small doctrine. It's a huge doctrine. Because what it says is we can push it down all we want to, but God says it's going to be dealt with. You are destined for reconciliation. It's an act of God's grace, and it's very difficult to walk in reconciliation. It's hard to live it out. This is not you know, easy Christianity. This is the tough part of Christianity. But we have to think inside our brains and our hearts and say, is there anyone on this planet that I live in un- unreconciled with? And then we have to find ways to make it right. Now, Paul has the helpful insight when he says, as it far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, all people. Meaning that there are people who will not live right with you. I, I get that. There are times where people will not be reconciled to you, and you have to bear that in times. But as far as it depends on you, live in reconciliation and do what you or God's called you to do. So Paul makes this point finally in verse 22, the application. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death in order to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's the whole gospel right there. So the whole means of grace is about presenting you before God without blemish. That's why I get to be the bride of Christ too because I am part of that unblemished bride and so are you. I'm part of the full inheritance, so are you. We are now part of this movement toward being holy before God. And you can't, Wes reminds us, can't do it on your own. Christ does it, and we are now called to be in Christ. So come up into who he is. So in summary, Jesus Christ is the means of grace through which you and I are conformed fully to the image of God once again. The image of God is restored. The mirror is restored to some large degree and ultimately in the eschaton completely. 
the Jesus Christ is the means of grace by which we claim our inheritance and what it means to be a, 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 in sonship, of the inherit of the firstborn sons, which we all partake of. And finally, the means of grace enables us to move from being alienated to being fully reconciled to God. These are great gifts. And you, can you believe it that all of this is contained in one six-verse hymn of the early church? Now, those are my kind of hymn writers. Thanks be to God. Amen.